I think building awareness is at the bottom and foundation of everything we do, isn't it? Agreed. Certainly yeah. that's why I went into training originally is, is I was in trouble. And the help that I've got is about awareness, is about building awareness. Awareness is so key to everything we do, isn't it? Educational, organisational, counselling, psychotherapy. This is such an important part of our TA training. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, John Fleming. In this episode, we speak with Leilani Mitchell. Leilani is a training and supervising transactional analyst in the psychotherapy field and a founder and director of the Link Center. We speak about her passion for education, the radical inclusion workshops she set up during the lockdown, developing TA theory and the importance of humility in our work. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Leilani. It's good to have you on. Thank you. So if we could just start off by getting you to introduce yourself, say a little bit about where you come from, what you do, that sort of thing. Yes, certainly. So I'm Leilani Mitchell. I live in southeast of England in Sussex and I don't live very far from where I grew up actually. I grew up in a little village called Hartfield, which is where Winnie the Pooh comes from. So me and Winnie the Pooh are almost related. <laughs> and I'm qualified as a TA psychotherapist, although I also did an integrative counselling course. And I've also trained in organisational TA and I've done all sorts of bits and pieces in educational TA as well. So I really see myself as an educator mm. because my main work now really is about running the Link Centre, which is a training centre based here in Sussex. Great. I'm really interested in what you say about you seeing your identity as an educator, Lani. although what you've said is that you actually, you're part of the psychotherapy field and transactional analysis and because you run the Link Centre and you train uh, TA professionals there that you've got a strong educational identity. How did that come about for you? When did you really step into seeing that as your main professional identity? Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I'm quite surprised that that sort of came out of my mouth, actually. But it does make some sense for me. So when I originally started training, I had quite a challenging childhood. My parents were in a lot of conflict. My mother was an immigrant. And my school life was quite difficult in terms of the learning, in terms of the academic stuff. And I now realise that I probably have ADHD, but it obviously wasn't picked up on then. And I come from a family of educators. So it was sort of in my family challenge education and also sort of personal development type stuff as well. So when I first went to train, I was actually working in an organisation. I was working in sales management. And I had got interested in the learning process in training up the new people that came on board. And I went off to do a counselling course, I think really because I felt that I needed help. I'd just been through a trauma. My brother had just died. I divorced. I was only 23 and I wanted help. But what I was interested in was the learning process. And I thought I wanted to train in organisational work and sort of got a bit sidetracked in counselling and psychotherapy, which I do also love. But I think over the years, I think also about therapy as being a learning experience. Mm. And I think all of this, this is what TA brings us, is a great range of tools 
for us to learn and develop and developing is about learning and learning is about developing mm, yeah so mark and i set up the link center about i can't remember what year 2002 or 2003 so i've been involved in actual sort of educating in terms of ta for a long time now for a big chunk of my career and although i did see clients for a good chunk of time i now don't see clients anymore and my focus is on using that knowledge those skills to help people to learn to educate people people that are interested yeah i'm probably taking too long to answer that question. no not at all i'm really interested because right. i think that my own perspective is that there's a big bias for psychotherapy in the ta community and my own sense as well is that maybe sometimes people end up training to be therapists because they don't know what else might be on offer. And that's definitely been true for me because I started in psychotherapy, then also did education and then did a year of organization last year. And Matt has a similar story where he's gone across the fields now as well. So I find that really interesting about how you can be attracted to something like transactional analysis because of the work that you want to do on yourself. But actually, maybe your identity is outside the therapeutic field. Do you think yeah. that that's true for you, Lani? I think it's certainly true in the UK. I don't think it's true worldwide. So yeah. I think in many countries, like in Germany, for example, there's lots of organizational and educational practitioners and counsellors and psychotherapists as well. I think we're in quite a sort of unique situation in the UK where psychotherapy is by far the largest field. And I think there's always a challenge when there's a majority and a minority, mm. isn't there? And it's so important that we account for the other fields and that we learn from them and integrate them. Personally, I have a bit of a bugbear about the whole fields thing. Mm. I would prefer that maybe we did a transactional analysis course and then we applied it in a range of different ways not just the four fields. You know, TA can be used in so many different areas, in parenting, in dog training, in coaching, in all yeah. sorts of different things. So I think for me, even having the sort of four fields is a bit limiting. So if we mm. did a sort of transaction analysis course and then went on to get supervision maybe in specialist areas, I don't know. It's not, yeah, it's or not major, really like through. the American system where you major in a certain subject. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. Like that and also not so defined. You know, I think one of the things that I often say to our psychotherapy and counseling students at the Link Centre is don't limit yourself to just seeing clients one to one. You've got a, such a range of knowledge. You could run some psychoeducational groups or some little training courses or a whole range of different things. Let's not limit ourselves by this label of uh, counselling, psychotherapy, educational organisation. Mm. Nice. Yeah, and, and one-to-one work, anyway, in my opinion, is the wrong direction to be going in these days because it doesn't really make it accessible, particularly in things like therapy. I think having individual therapy is not as accessible broadly for people as group therapy would be mainly because of the affordability mm. factor. And I know accessibility is a really important area for you, Lilani. Do you want to share some of your thoughts yeah, on that? It's really important. It's really important. Again, I think we know that training as a psychotherapist and counsellor is very expensive and in the other fields as well. It's very limited and it's always been a real passion of mine to do what I can to make learning accessible. And that is in terms of affordability, but also in terms of how it's delivered, 
you know, so that we can make it as accessible as possible to a whole range of people. And of course, there's a tension in that. I realised running the Link Centre, you know, that, that Mark and I have to earn a living as well. We also have to pay our amazing core trainers and yeah. visiting trainers. So it's like how to make things as accessible as possible. And money is one of those aspects, mm. but also, you know, manage to earn a living ourselves. So one of the things that I did was to launch the Radical Inclusion Workshops, yeah. which I hope everyone's been to, which actually was in reaction to COVID. But it was something that I had been thinking about for quite some time. Yeah. And those of you that know me will know that I'm also very invested in community. I love our community. I love bringing our community together. I'm really passionate about introducing each other and working collaboratively with people. So when we went into lockdown, then I spoke to John Wilson on events and we decided to launch this program of online workshops that were by donation. So they're accessible to anyone, everyone. And that's really rolled out. We thought it was going to last about three weeks, this global pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) That was very long. Closer to three years, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. So that was 18 months ago. And although mostly we are sort of coming out of lockdown in in the world, we have decided to continue these workshops because the feedback has just been amazing. And all sorts of people from all around the world have been able to come together and access these. So they're still on a Monday morning and a Tuesday evening. And I love being able to bring people in from different countries and different Mm. cultures and different ideas because I think one of the things that we sort of lack in TA is is much cross-fertilization. We have some. We have the TAJ and we have the Theory and Research Artists Committee and there is a bit of cross-fertilization but there's not enough. There are so Mm. many amazing ideas being developed in different parts of the world and I want to really sort of like bring that together so that we can all learn from it. Yeah. And Lalani, those trainings and workshops, it was Mondays at what time? So Mondays, UK time, 10 a.m. till 12. And then Tuesday evening, 6 p.m. till 8 p.m. Okay, so there's two opportunities every week. Every week, yeah. Brilliant. And they they would be accessible to people as well who might not know a huge amount of TA, do you reckon? Yeah, so most of them are TA-focused, but not all of them are. Actually, we've had all sorts of things. Like we've had stuff on nutrition and mental health, a whole range of different stuff. But yes, they're aimed at a whole range of levels of understanding of of TA because we get hundreds of people attend Mm. the workshops with a range of knowledge and a range of different time zones. Some people get up at four o'clock in the morning to listen to them, to watch Mm. them. Amazing. Yeah, We can put the link in the bio for the podcast they were such a godsend during the lockdown for me yeah. and it was so lovely to be able to connect with people in brazil and russia and all across the world it was amazing really yeah. phenomenal yeah i love that i'm people. so i've always been a conference goer and i've always been involved in community you know i've been on all sorts of different committees and involved in aarta and involved in a whole range of things and it's always been such a pleasure to sort of bring people together and introduce them and to really mm. see the connections that people make in the community. So this has just been a delight for me to be able to be involved in and, and certainly I'm going to carry them on. So, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, Great. so do come and support us because we do need people to attend. To be yeah. Able to yeah, absolutely. And it might be a really good way if we have listeners who haven't done any TA training or haven't even done a 101 yet. It might be a really good taster just to see what it's all about and to meet other people. Because I think that was the big thing for me when I first 
entered the TA community was the people that I got stuck on. I was like, oh, these people think like me. They're kind of like outsiders too. (laughs) (laughs) They're a bit strange. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, I hate to be cliche, but it was kind of like finding my tribe. I felt at home in the TA community. And I think that that's the powerful thing about it. I agree with you and I disagree with you. Mm. I think it's really important that we face up to the reality of our community. Our community is like any other community. So I've been involved in this community for 30 years and I've so often heard, you know, this community is great, so accepting, so loving, it's so all of it. But we are a community like any other community and we are human. And I think it's so important for us as transactional analysts to realize that we're human first mm-hmm. and we need to have the humility to understand that we are going to get into stuff. We are going to mm-hmm. get into games, you know, not to set ourselves up to be superior because we know this knowledge that we are somehow better than or one up or something than other people. We are human beings and it's really important. It's such a fundamental value for me that we are real, that we are human, that we don't, in all aspects of our life, we don't have this delusion that yeah. we are better mm. than because we know some theories, because we know some theories which are useful. But yeah. 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 I think that's a really important thing to mention. I was working with someone recently and it was a piece of organizational work, but We were talking about how organizations and professional communities like the TA community are really just extensions of society. So you can expect to find anything else that goes out on in the world in your organization or in your professional community. So I think it's a really good shout, Lilani, because we're not some sort of higher race or anything like that. We're just no, ordinary people. No, and that's not people. to say that we don't have good intention. You know, mm. I think the, that generally people in the TA community have good intention. But I wonder if it's something in the theory or something in the culture. You know, just the sort of like the concept of I'm okay, you're okay. It's a fabulous, simple, but very profound value and idea. But I also wonder whether it in some way invites us to discount the shadow, invites us to discount the reality of human beings. You know, if we look around the world, there is all sorts of very challenging stuff going on and people treating people in very not okay ways. Mm -hmm. And do we keep ourselves in a sort of deluded bubble by hanging on to that aspiration, maybe as a reality? I don't know. I'm pondering it myself at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it probably goes along a similar line to some of the conversations we have had with other guests around the TA community being very insular. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why why maybe that also happens. Matt's going to start laughing now because I always (laughs) talk about this image. But I have this image that the TA community is almost like a tribal community and that they're all standing around in a circle facing inwards that we're all just shoulder to shoulder. Mm. Um, And of course, what we're not doing often when we're doing that is looking at what's going on outside of the TA community and interacting. Not always. And I know that's not true for everybody. You're doing some amazing work with the Radical Inclusion Workshops. But Mm. I do think there is a level of being insular that's not healthy sometimes. Mm. And I wonder, ponder often, Matt and I would be chatting about this quite frequently, if some of that might be something to do about how Eric Byrne set up TA in the first place. 
about stepping away and wanting to be different. Maybe, kind of- although he was very keen, I think, to also to integrate other ideas as mm. well. I don't know about the whole thing about the legacy of, of Burn mm. and that being the sort of culture of TAI. I think it's partly about being victims of our own success. Mm. You know, TA is a fantastic theory. It's really useful to so many people. It's used in so many different areas. Whereas a lot of theories, I'm thinking particularly about counseling and psychotherapy fields now, will go to like the BACP conference and that will be, that's in the UK. There'll be a whole range of different workshops from different modalities. TA, we have our own conference because we're a big enough and successful enough community. So, yes, I think it's not ideal. I think we do need, as I said, to cross-fertilize with different ideas, different theories, different fields and different cultures as well. So all of that is a sort of richness. But I guess it's part of the sort of human condition, isn't it, is that we create a frame of reference and it's sort of comfortable to live within that frame of reference, isn't it? And although we're very familiar with the concept of frame of reference in TA, I think sometimes we might discount the fact that we are looking at things through our TA lens. For me, one of the things that's been really challenging for me recently is this awareness that I think I have ADHD. And that I wish I'd known a long time ago. It would have been so useful for me to know that at school. It would have been so useful for me to know that through my TA training, which was challenging. And the thing I feel some, I mean, I feel sad when I talk about that, but One of the things that I'm really aware of is how I think that I've pathologized myself and I've pathologized clients, fitting it into, oh, that script, oh, that's an early decision, oh, this is why this person is is behaving like this. Whereas because I was looking from that frame of reference, whereas now with new information about more neurodivergence, ADHD and and other things, I'm thinking oh, you know, that may well not have been a script. And I think that we as individuals and as a community, again, we need to continue to learn and to continue to develop and know that there's lots of stuff we don't know and that we are trying to fit things into our frame of reference. So let's do our best not to do that. Absolutely. I think that's probably reflective of the broader society as well, Lelani. Like when I was going to school, no one talked about neurodiversity or neurodivergence. Mm. Like for me, that's been a really new concept and something that's only really begun to be talked about definitely in my own home community anyway, in like the last 10 years, maybe. So I think it's probably reflective as well of just how we're all in the world waking up to this reality. Mm. But I do think it's an important shout, isn't it? That as a community, the TA community really also now needs to be engaging in that conversation, that dialogue and understanding what neurodivergence really means and how we can incorporate and make our training accessible to people who are neurodivergent. Do you have some thoughts about that? Yes. I mean, I think it's quite interesting how ideas develop. It's quite random. Different people get interested in things and then they develop ideas around that. And so it's not very well structured, is it? It's like if TA was a business, Mm. you'd be looking at What's working? What isn't working? What needs to be developed? What doesn't need to be developed? What needs to be dropped? Whereas TA as a whole, whole theory develops in different directions at different times with different people. And I love that about it. 
but also there are some challenges, aren't there? Things yeah. that potentially can get missed. Yes. And I love new ideas and I'm so grateful to those people that come in and do introduce new ideas. And I was just looking this morning at Nims. Can't remember her last name. Oh, I know who you're on about on LinkedIn. Yeah. Just who's developing these amazing new diagrams. And I know Kate Jones has been doing some stuff as well. And how lovely and refreshing that is to have those new ideas and those new concepts come in. Because I think one of the issues for me is about some of our theories and some of our diagrams that don't make sense. It really bugs me. (laughs) It really bugs me. And things like we have to teach original theory on the TA 101. You know, I think that it would be really good to have things refreshed and changed Mm. and to TA is moving and developing and that's very exciting. And it's important to account for those routes, but we don't have to keep drawing that symbiosis diagram the same. Talking about the TA 101 being the most relevant information rather than the original. Yeah. You know, it's like fine to have it because it's taught all over the world, fine to have these ideas that need to be taught. It doesn't have to be original theory, please. And it doesn't have to be original definitions, which sometimes are a little bit outdated. I do sneak in some other ideas on my on my 101 as well. So I do cover the stuff, but I do sneak in things like the steps to success. And yeah, I draw a different symbiosis diagram, my own one. <laughs> yeah. And like personally, I've become really interested in not looking at models that over pathologize people. I mean, that's the thing that actually I got really hooked on when I moved out of the psychotherapy field. Well, not moved out of it, but also entered the educational field. It's just Mm -hmm. noticing about how most of their models focused on resource and what the client's strengths were in comparison to where their deficits or their pathology is. And I found that really motivating and encouraging, actually. Because I had spent two years looking at all the problems people could have. (laughs) It was flipped. I really like that kind of positive outlook. I think both is important. So, yeah, I'm aware when I did my counselling and psychotherapy training, the focus was very much on pathology. And in organisational and educational training, it seemed that the focus was very much on the building on the strengths. And I think it's important that we account for all of that, you know, the pathology and the strengths. It's not an either or. And of course, depending on our own personality, our own script, our own preference, we might be drawn towards one or the other. But all of those are important. Mm. I noticed you mentioned modeled um, while ago called Steps to Success. I've actually never come across that. Have you, Matt? No, same here. Well, you should come on my TA 101. (laughs) Can you do a quick teach, Lilani? Get yourself booked on the TA 101. So the Steps to Success is a model that was developed by Julie Hay for organizational work. But I've always used it in, since I first came across it. I've used it in every area of my work, in my clinical work with clients, in teaching, in my personal life. It's a sort of simplified model of the discount matrix. So the discount matrix and the idea of different levels of discounting, I think is fabulous and so useful. And it's something that TA really brings to the arena because all or most theories have the concept of discounting, but they use it as use different language. But that idea of having the different levels is something quite unique to us and so useful for anybody that is facilitating other people, coaches, educators, parents, counsellors, whatever. So I love the, can you tell? I really... Can I just ask if someone was listening to this podcast who had no TA education at all, could you just explain really briefly what you mean by discount and discounting? Yeah, yeah, certainly. 
So discounting, let's see if I can remember the definition. So that will test me. So discounting is an internal mechanism which involves a person minimizing or ignoring some aspect of self, others, or the reality situation. Shift 1970 something or other, maybe two. It's the idea of blind spots that we filter certain things out about ourselves, about others, about the world. And we all do it. We all do it some of the time. Probably as you're listening to this podcast, you might be filtering out the noise of the traffic or the kids in the background or the dog barking or things like that. But when we're talking about discounting in TA, it's generally we're talking about in a way where it's not useful to us. So we've all learned to shut down on aspects of ourselves, but we can do it at different levels. So the discount matrix is quite a complicated, in my view, (laughs) way of looking at those different levels. So the discount matrix is a lovely piece of theory for those people that are theorists that really like the minute detail of like where somebody exactly might be discounting. Whereas the steps of success, in my view, is a much more user-friendly model. The step success is like a stairway. So if you imagine six steps going up and they all begin with S, so it's sort of really easy to remember. And so the bottom step, situation, and then imagine the steps going up. So it's situation, significance, solution, skills, strategy, success. And those are on the six steps. And then there's a Leilani Mitchell 2001 edition, which she hasn't written up. On the top step, support, and also a banister going all the way up the others, which is also support. So support all the way up and on the top step. Nice. And I love this piece of theory. It's simple. It's really nice and visual. You can share it with people. And it helps us to think about where the person is discounting. So anyone that is facilitating anyone else will probably know that we can see other people's blind spots so much more easily than we can see our own. So someone might come to you and be talking about, you know, I don't know what to do about this, that and the other. And you might be thinking, well, they need to get a new job or leave their relationship or something. Obviously, we don't tend to suggest that. But what's important is that we come down to the step that the person's on. So this is a piece of theory to help us understand at what level are other people discounting and then to come down and meet them on that step. And then to journey to facilitate them on that step. And the facilitation skills we use will be different depending on the different steps. And then we work our way up the steps with the client or or coachee or whoever it is that we're working with. And the reason that I put support at the top, I mean, obviously, we do need support all the way through as we become aware, as we account rather Mm. than discount, as we build our awareness But particularly, we need support once we've made changes in our life. So in TA, we talk about script, the idea of life script, which is limiting decisions that we've made that we sort of unconsciously live out. When we then step out of that into a sort of freer, more autonomous place, it has an impact on the social system around us. So we all live in a society, in a group of friends and relatives and sorts of things. And at some level, they have some investment in us staying the way we are. Even if at an overt level, of course, they want us to stop drinking or be more confident or get a new job or something. There's a psychological pressure to stay the same because when we change, it changes the whole group dynamic. And so if we're making those changes, 
say you're stopping drinking or you're believing in yourself, feeling better about yourself, we need some support that's external to our main system that we live in. So that's why I've added support, but I haven't written it up. And one day I'll write up all of these things that I keep talking about. <laughs> the day is not that day. One day I'll do a new symbiosis diagram. I'll change activities on the time structuring. I'll Ooh. write up the, my bit to the... <laughs> Sorry, stop, 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 stop right there. We cannot move past time structuring without hearing from you. Well, how would you do it differently? <laughs> well, I haven't decided yet. Okay. <laughs> so time structuring is the idea of how we spend our time when we're awake. So how we spend our time and there's different ways and people have different preferences. So the six different t- ways of time structuring at the moment are withdrawal, rituals, pastimes, activity, psychological games, and intimacy or emotional intimacy. And for me, the activity didn't fit. It's not Mm. quite as different from the others. So activity, in terms of this time structuring model, is about time spent focused on doing something. So something like a club. It's like you have a Lego club, something like that, and you're all focused on doing something. But for me, when we're doing these sort of group activities focused on a goal, we're doing some of the others. We spend some of that time in withdrawal, which is going off in our own world. Rituals and pastimes are the very smallest bits of interaction between people. So the smiling at people or chatting about the weather. Some of that goes on in Lego clubs. The psychological games is when we get into unconscious patterns that end up with both people or more people feeling not okay getting to into sort of messy transactions well that goes on in lego clubs and also sometimes we have very intimate conversations emotionally intimate conversations so yeah i want to update that maybe i don't quite know how yet sounds interesting uh, there's several models i want to tweak Mm, bring out 21st century model book yeah yeah, with new diagrams. With new diagrams. They with could be new Lego diagrams blocks. and change the symbiosis diagram so that it doesn't involve adults. Mm. I noticed that you mentioned while you were talking about the steps of success, you use the term about building awareness. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what that is from your perspective. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, so I think building awareness is at the bottom and foundation of everything you do, isn't it? Agreed. Certainly, yeah. that's why I went into training originally is, is I was in trouble. I was 23. I was quite, I think, very dysfunctional. I'd just been through a major bereavement. My brother contracted HIV, AIDS, and died in my early 20s. It was in the 80s when it was a big, big... So sorry was, to hear that, Lani. It was traumatic. I'd got married on the back of that. I'd had a baby unplanned. I'd divorced. I was, you know, it's like I needed help. And the help that I've got is about awareness, is about building awareness. It wasn't my fault that I was born. I remember that was my very first major bit of insight when I went into therapy. I'd always been told because of my mother's belief system that I'd chosen to be born to her. I'd chosen. It wasn't my fault I was born. It wasn't my fault that he died. It's like, Awareness is so key to everything we do, isn't it? Educational, organizational, counseling, psychotherapy. This is such an important part of our TA training is about the therapy that people have and the learning that people do about themselves. Again, I'm so passionate about this idea about humility. And it's even built into our code of ethics, isn't it? That we mustn't ever think we know it all. 
we mustn't ever think that we have the most amazing awareness. We don't. I'm still learning things about myself. This last 18 months has been huge in terms of my personal yeah. learning about myself and vulnerabilities that I have and all sorts of stuff. Great. Love it. I'm going on, aren't I? No, it's no, fantastic. It's one of the reasons why I love mindfulness. I trained, don't know how many years ago, as a mindfulness teacher and I incorporate it in so much of therapy that I do with my clients because you can't change anything that you're not aware of. So first step, first of all, is noticing. And yeah, I love that. Fantastic. Yeah. So I do mindfulness meditation every day and Mark's a mindfulness teacher as well. But I also love mindlessness. <laughs> Tell us about my favorite. We don't value mindlessness enough. So I think, yeah, mindfulness is fantastic and building awareness and all of that. But I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking about how much we value thinking as a race, don't we? Yeah. We really value ideas and thinking and concepts. And we really value doing and achieving and training and passing exams and all of that. And we talk in terms of mindfulness and in terms of TA about being about not being a human thinking and not being a human doing, but being a human being. Mm. But part of being a human being is sometimes being mindless. I love just sometimes absolutely not focusing on my body or what's going on at the moment, but just doing something completely mindless, I think is also really nourishing. I think there's a whole new area for development of mindlessness. Are you talking about something like daydreaming is that an example of what you mean by mindlessness yes daydreaming or just nothing yeah i spend hours day <laughs> daydreaming <laughs> and this is a really good forum whether we actually end up putting this in the podcast or not but i just really want to ask both of you now because i know you both have an area of interest in this i had always understood that my daydreaming was disassociation and was unhealthy and i had a really interesting conversation with a psychologist recently and he was saying, no, it absolutely is not disassociation. What do you guys think about that? I think it depends on whether it is dissociation or not. Yeah, it's <laughs> not just a case of it is or it isn't. It depends on the person. I, well, I suppose I think dissociation is in a way from association, isn't it? I suppose the question for me is, is it pathological or is it not? Is it mm. useful or is it not? Does it serve you? Probably that is my main question. Does it serve you or does it not serve you? If it doesn't serve you, then it's not useful. Maybe think about doing something else. If it serves you yeah. and you enjoy it and it's nourishing, go for it. Do more of it. And so some, of my, some of my best ideas, I think, have come when I've been daydreaming. And I think that it's that balance between awareness and not being aware. In mindfulness, they talk about the self-liberating thoughts, the ones that just bubble up. That have, you have no intention that they arise. That's where creativity comes from. And that's where some of our best ideas come from. And I think they happen often when I'm walking the dog and I'm in an organic, beautiful environment and a thought bubbles up. And it's so I wouldn't see that as dissociation. And sometimes it is dissociation yeah. for some yeah. people in certain, certain situations. So. Mm, yeah. But I think, yeah, this is this thing about looking from our own frame of reference, isn't it? Yeah. It's like human beings like certainty, don't we like labels? We like cohesive narratives. And TA is just a cohesive narrative, isn't it? Like any theory, and that can be useful or it can be limited. And sometimes it's not cohesive because they don't always fit together. But 
just we need to be aware of that, don't we? That we are using something to create a narrative for our own comfort because then we feel more comfortable when we have a cohesive narrative, but that that's what it is. It's not reality. And to hold that very, very loosely, I think. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think you're introducing a really interesting concept here, Lelani, you know, and giving people permission in the process as well to be mindless, because for me, mindlessness has a negative connotation. It's like, well, if you're not doing two hours of meditation every day and getting really zen, you're not okay. <laughs> I, think, I think it fits in with the whole sort of cultural thing that we have in the UK, particularly and maybe in Western society about extroversion being seen as more valuable than introversion. Yeah. And although people often see me as an extrovert, I also have a very introvert part. And I think it's really important that we value those equally. Like yeah. people don't have to speak up or be seen or yeah be there, make a noise to be valued. Let's make sure that we do what we can to value people yeah. equally and in the knowledge that we won't, that we do judge, we are judgmental, we are prejudiced, we are human, we have all of these things and this is the reality. The more aware that we can be yeah. of those biases, of those prejudices, of our frame of reference, the better, hopefully, for society as a whole, really. I mean, I put out something on social media the other day on September the 11th, actually, just saying, you know, what will it take for us to live in peace? What will it take for human beings to live in peace? Someone put lots of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> probably as, yeah, as close to it as anything, isn't it? Like, we've never lived in peace. We're not peaceful beings. No. We're not tolerant beings. And I think that comes a lot down to what you're talking about, self-awareness and noticing that we don't have that peace within us. Mm. And mm. so we focus on the other and we imagine that our troubles are because of another. Mm. And a yes. lot of it is what's going on inside. And so yeah. this is why self-awareness is so important. It is. And in that, it's not like I'm better than anyone else because TA gives us tools for that. It's just we so lack awareness. And I also feel very passionately that in that self-awareness, we need to be careful about the self. So the TA theory, much of it is very focused on I, mm. isn't it? And of course, we do have some more stuff coming in with homonymy and the co-creation stuff about we-ness and stuff like that. But I think we need to be more we. I want to go wider than we, us. I don't yeah. know. So self and other and community and just be so focused. I mean, we need to learn to share, don't we? You know, I've done such a lot of work in the past around supporting refugees and the TA project that I did around that. And we find it really difficult to share, don't we? I know a lot of people say we're greedy. I don't think it's greed. I think it's survival. Yeah, self-protective. I, I think possibly everyone has a bit of a scarcity issue. It's like we hoard and we grab and we want more and we want a bigger house and another car and a holiday and we're not willing to give those things up even when we see a level of trauma and deprivation in others mm. well we do to an extent i don't want to take away from that because again i just put a post out asking for two therapists for two afghan refugees and i've had so many people contact me and mm. offer free sessions we do have a huge amount of generosity within our community as well and within the human spirit. I don't want to take away from you. Yeah. I wonder, you know, when you talk about everyone has a scarcity issue or a lot of people anyway, 
I wonder how much of that is actually transgenerational and the horrible atrocities that have happened in the past where so many people come from lineages that were in some way affected by that. I don't want to speak for anyone else because I don't think it's appropriate for me to, so I'll only use my own experience. But I've come from a lineage that was horribly affected by the potato famine in Ireland, where there was a lot of starvation. So I grew up in a family where you'd have your arms on the table around your plate and you would eat fast and you would eat all of it, no matter whether you were hungry or not. And I just took time to reflect about that and actually think about, am I hungry or is there something else going on here? So, I mean, if you just take that small example and you blow it up and you think about all of the things that could have affected people in the past, we're all walking around Mm. carrying a lot from our ancestors, I think. So my fear and worry about that is we can talk about awareness, like, but we have a lot of work to do in terms of awareness and a lot of people to gain awareness. Like even if you just take the whole Afghanistan and Iraq thing alone in the last 20 years, not mind what happened previous to that in the Cold War, in the World Wars, in the various famines, genocides that have happened. Oh my God, like there is a lot of healing in this world. And my fear really is that some people aren't interested in healing because they're still so activated at getting revenge or whatever it might be. I watched that um, Turning Point documentary that's come out over the weekend. It's about what happened in the Afghan and Iraq wars after 9-11. And there was a young man on it. He must have been about 15. And he's the son of a Taliban leader. And I really became to understood actually what went on in the last 20 years because my reality after watching that was that I didn't know anything that was really going on until I watched that documentary. I felt really informed afterwards. This young guy, 15, and all he said was, we will get our revenge. And I went, wow, because he really means that. It's sort of, this is the part of the human condition that we need to be careful not to ignore. Mm. I think idealized, I'm okay, you're okay philosophy. And again, I don't want to take away from that being a fabulous concept and a great aspiration for us all. But I'm sure we can all understand revenge. Mm. I'm sure that every single human being has had things happen to them that are unfair and unjust Mm. and has wanted to get revenge, whether or not they've done it or not. And depending on the level of the abuse or the trauma or the impact, of course, if someone had murdered your mother or raped your sister, or it's like, it seems a normal human response to want revenge to that. 100%. That. Yeah. There is a difference between acting, acting it out and just wanting it. But this is part of us. This is part of us. And people have done atrocious, unfair, unjust things to each other. The potato famine is a great example of that, isn't it? Mm. It's like that was caused by other people's decisions and that wasn't fair and people died and people really, really suffered. So I think that in terms of us all having scarcity issues, I think I want to correct myself or I want to change my mind and say we all have survival issues. Mm. We all have issues around survival. And I don't know, I might disagree with everything I've said on this podcast in the next few years because I do change my mind about things. But I think part of it is generational. Absolutely. We know now from any epigenetics that it's there in our genes, the previous trauma. But I also think it's about human babies. You know, human babies are born very helpless in the world, aren't they? And that has advantages and disadvantages. 
the advantages are that our brains are not well developed and that we can adapt and learn to survive a huge range of situations. Um, the disadvantage is that we are hugely at risk. We have to make survival decisions. And I think of our script decisions, all of our script decisions, being about survival. Yeah. I have to not feel because it increases the chances of me surviving in this family. I have to not belong. I have to not think for myself. It increases the chance yeah. of me surviving. So if every one of our script decisions is a survival decision, that is because as young babies, we're worried about survival. Yeah. We think, we believe that we may not survive, not at a cognitive level, of course, but mm. more somatic level. So it's like that then leads to me thinking, yeah, everyone has a survival issue. And one of the things that we do at this point, who knows whether we'll do that in generations to come, is that we surround ourselves with things, don't we? With cups, diaries, computers, pens, calculators. And that somehow that gives us some sense of security and a home. And yeah, I'm going on again. It's so interesting that you say that because from my understanding, I was watching the Gabor Mate documentary recently and he talks about the essential aspect of survival is about attachment, that the infant must be attached to the caregiver. And so we give away that sense of authenticity and we give away so much and we embrace all of the values and the teachings. You get all the contaminations of what our parents think and their beliefs and their need for revenge and all the rest of it. And so we're raised in these environments in order to survive and we embrace the tribal, our caregivers. And it is, like you say, I think there's a lot about what happens when we're babies. And this is one of the things I love about TA is that idea of what's going on not to nine or whatever. Why I love the subjects of the psychotherapy as well is understanding where those ideas came from. Yeah. And Delaney, why TA in comparison to any other modality? We've talked an awful lot about its shortcomings or where we need to improve on and where we need to ensure that we don't have blind spots or deal with blind spots that we do have. But what is it about it that you love and that keeps you centered in it? So, yeah, interesting question, because actually I like all theories, even theories I don't like, I like, because it stimulates me. So it's not just TA for me. I am really interested in other ideas as well. But I think what I really love about TA is that it makes sense to people. I know all your other guests will probably, will probably have said that, but I love teaching TA 101. I really like those basic ideas and that I can teach something or I can facilitate others in learning something that is useful to them now and can be useful to them for the rest of their life. Something like the drama triangle. Everyone remembers that. It's such a useful, simple concept. Mm. I personally, I don't like the overcomplicated models. So I'm not a theorist. I'm a pragmatist. I like practical application and activist. I like, like doing things. So, yeah, those sorts of like circles within circles within circles within circles don't particularly interest me, but I'm interested that other people love those bits of theory. So, yeah, I think because it's powerful in its simplicity, it's very profound and it's very practical and useful to people. Mm. So last night I came in and my granddaughter lives with me and I home educator. And she came in last night and she had a cold and she wasn't very well. And 
she lay on the sofa and she just said, I just, I need a hug. I just come here. I need a hug. I need a hug. Anyway, so I went and gave her a hug. And I stood back and sort of watched her and reflected on what was going on for her. And knowing her very well, I thought, she's getting into something here that's not useful. And then she was asking for other things and I was doing something else. And eventually she sat down and she said, why are you not loving me like you normally do? And I felt a little pang of sadness for a minute. And then I got out my piece of paper and I went through the drama triangle again. And she was like, oh, yeah, I am doing that. Brilliant. And I said, the reason I'm not is not because I don't love you. It's because I think that you're doing that thing when you get into that really sort of like victim-y place. And I don't want to encourage you in that because it's not useful. Because I know there's other ways that you know of asking for help. So it might feel like I'm being hard, but I'm actually being loving by not going along with this. So what is it that you need from me now? So then we had a conversation about it. So that's what I love about it. I can just whip out the drama triangle and help her at 12 years old to think about and to gain awareness. And that that's never stopped. I've been involved in TA 30 years and still it's new to people. It's exciting. It's useful. And that's what I really love about it. So, Lalani, if people want to get in touch, find out more about you, chat to you, how could they do that? There's a whole range of different ways. So you can email me at leilani at thelinkcenter.co.uk. That's leilani, L-E-I-L-A-N-I, at thelinkcenter.co.uk. Or on Facebook, or on Twitter, or on Instagram, or on LinkedIn. Basically, on every social media platform. I also run the Transactional Analysis Tutor Facebook group, which is where we put all the details of the Radical Inclusion workshops. And as I said, that's not just for people that are interested in TA. It's a whole lot of them are focused on TA, but it's quite a good level where everyone can understand it. So I'm all over the place and I love connecting with people. So do connect with me. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. And I also wanted to say that I love the fact that you two are doing this. I have felt like I've been on a one-woman mission, and I know that sounds a bit, yeah, arrogant, (laughs) but to promote TA to the outside world. So on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, whenever I write an article, I make sure I put the words transaction analysis in there. So I have really been working on getting those words out into the community. So I love that you two are doing this because this is another great way of getting TA known. And obviously, those workshops that we were talking about, the radical inclusion workshops, again, have like hugely increased the profile of TA, which I love. Brilliant. Mm, Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Delaney. You're really welcome. It's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Snap. (laughs) As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. You can visit our website, which has lots of information and TA resources, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can connect with us on all major platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. If you haven't already, please follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. And we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review. Thanks for listening.